the crotch and I got on top of the corral. Um, and there was, there was nothing I could do. So my dad, he was, he, he was, he was killing my dad and my dad, he's, he said he was basically done and he, he tried to hold on to the horns of this bull. And, uh, he said, he, he shouted out, he said, Lord, if you want to save me, you got to save me now or you got to take me. Or he's gone. Yeah. yeah. And the bull stopped, left him and walked into the corral, like calmly made his way into the corral. And my dad was lying there. Right after that prayer. Yeah. He, he shouted, you got to save me or you got to take me. Crazy. And, um, the bull left him, walked into the corral and he was lying there. So I jumped off hobbled on one leg, put him sort of over my shoulder, threw him over the fence and um, ran to the truck. And as I ran to the truck, I called my mom and I said, listen, dad's in big trouble. You need to call the hospital and tell them I'm on my way and um, he's not good. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Mountain Tough Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. It is our goal to bring you powerful, inspiring episodes week after week to help you live an abundant life. We keep the content powerful to help you grow physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally to live the Mountain Tough lifestyle. I also want to say thank you to everyone who has taken the time to comment and review or rank and rate these episodes across the stores. We are so grateful for those comments and those reviews. We love seeing those come in and we love seeing everyone's feedback and we really, really appreciate that. We also love seeing the social media posts come through with clips from these episodes and our team always tries to reshare those when they come through as well. Current events in the lab, we are in the middle of October and the lab is still hammering on the mountain MGDs. So if you have not dove into the MGD program, make sure you take a peek at that. It is a minimal gear program that is fresh every 24 hours. So if you're looking for something challenging and new, the MGDs are always a great option, but currently it is some of the most difficult mentally and physically minimal gear dailies we've ever done. So if you're looking to test where you're at, if you're looking for that gut check, if you're looking for a challenge, dive into a few MGDs this month and see what the mountain program is all about. It is a four-week block of minimal gear dailies, and it is all focused on that mindset can you get through these workouts? Do you have the mindset to complete the mountain? So that's been a blast. We've been having a lot of fun with that. Different athletes coming in each day to film and test those workouts. Transitioning to today's episode, today I sit down with Paul Jordan. Paul is from Tolly's South African Safaris. I met Paul last year at the Western Hunt Expo down in Salt Lake City. And then Paul actually invited a few of us from Mountain Tough, myself included, and our families to pilot a youth hunting program in Africa that he was putting together. So I was sold as soon as he called me and let me know that this week was all about the kids. I have two young daughters, so I have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. And the school that Paul put together was all about 
a seven day program to get kids away from electronic, to get kids off phones, to get kids off tablets and get kids outdoors. And so once he told me that we got on a plane, I flew my family over and it was one of the greatest experiences of our life. So it was a seven day program. He taught the kids how to shoot, how to do African tracking, African animals, and then the kids were able to hunt and it was 24-7 adventure, a phenomenal trip. What happened then was Paul actually made a visit to Bozeman, so we had him here in the lab. We did some awesome training together, and then we sat down to record this episode. I really wanted to record this episode because Paul's mindset is intense. His intensity is at a whole new level. He pushes his body physically like a professional athlete, running a hunting outfitting business. It's incredible. So he's training very hard. He has a full legit home gym in the middle of nowhere at his hunting location so that he can train every morning at four before he's out hunting every day at seven. He is a past pro rugby player from South Africa. Then he came back home after he retired to take over a hunting business that his father started. They live in the middle of nowhere and their mindset and their mental toughness is something to admire. We dive into that on this episode and it's a unique perspective coming from Paul. And then it's a really unique perspective diving into how that was passed down to him from his father who has one of the toughest mindsets out there he was actually charged by a Cape Buffalo, uh, barely survived. The, the story is insane. It's an episode you're not going to want to miss. So stand by as we dive into this conversation with Paul. So what do you think of Bozeman? I like Bozeman. Um, Bozeman reminds me of where I went to high school. So it's a sort of country town called Bloemfontein. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where we did our high school of grade um, 8 to to 12. We did in, in Bloemfontein. And Bozeman has got sort of a Bloemfontein t- feel to it. Yeah. yeah. I've been in Texas and then Utah in Salt Lake. And uh, Bozeman just has a completely different feel. It definitely has a, a college, like younger town feel with our campus being here and then surrounded by mountains and then most college kids try to stay here after they graduate. So it's got a lot of active younger people. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, I love the mountains because we, we from a mountainous area and uh, just flying over or flying in, um, the view is beautiful. Yeah, I love flying into Bozeman. You look down and there's like all different mountain ranges. The view's spectacular. Yeah. And you've been to the U.S. several other times before. Yeah, I've been to the U.S. probably about seven or eight times. Yeah, and most of that's for marketing the African hunting business, correct? Yeah, I, I came over with my dad when we were a little bit younger, and then I actually came over to the U.S. in 2011 uh, to play rugby. Oh, we, you did? Yeah, I played a sevens tournament in Las Vegas which was pretty cool. Um, and then I started coming back in 2020. Yeah, so 2020, 21 was COVID, so, and then 22, 23, and 
this is my second trip this year. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, it's it's different. I got the chance to go see you in South Africa and definitely the the differences between the US and South Africa are noticeable. But kind of once you get out in the country where you live, I mean it feels like to, to me it felt like we were back at home like in eastern Montana or something. A lot of sheep farmers and cattle farmers and goat farmers. It feels a lot like the middle of nowhere, Montana. It does. It's the first thing I said to you when, when we ate in Three Forks mm-hmm. at the restaurant. I said, this feels a lot like Somerset East, our small little town. Yeah, yeah. very similar yeah. ranching and farming communities. Yeah. And so your family, like many South African families, immigrated to South Africa a long time ago, correct? Yeah, so the first Jordans arrived in South Africa in 1855. They were from the French Huguenots. And then our family settled on the properties where we still live in 1871. So me and my brothers are the sixth generation. My dad was the fifth. And uh, we've got a family tradition. And uh, you, you, the oldest boy and the boys get property. And then you got to look after that property, better that property, and then hand it over 30 years later. That's wild. To the next generation. So it's been six generations coming. That's a great philosophy because then you don't have someone potentially stuck on that family property into their old age that maybe can't put the work into it that they need to. And so the, like the farm and ranch doesn't start to peter off because the younger generation's always taking it to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. We've been, we've been extremely blessed, um, to grow up there and, uh, it's a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful part of the country. Um, and yeah, six generations, it's been coming for a while. It's sort of bred into you at, at this stage. Yeah. Yeah. And then your family wasn't always into the hunting business. Your dad was the first generation to get into the the hunting side of the operation? Yeah, so for the first four generations, it was all just local livestock farming. And in our area, it's still a lot of local livestock farming. And uh, when my dad finished school, he actually finished school, went to the army, and then came to the to the property. And my grandfather said, you work for five years, you work for me, I'll teach you everything you know, and then you can take over the business. I'll hand it over to you, and I'll go and do something else. And um, in those five years... My grandfather used to invite like a bunch of his friends over weekends, like the banker and the lawyer and a bunch of different guys. And they'd come over and they'd shoot like a lot of wildlife because my grandfather believed he, he actually believed he made his money from the grass on the property. Mm-hmm. So the more grass, the more livestock, the more money he made. Um, so it was a simple concept. But there were these wild animals. Back then there was about four or five different species, kudu, Impala, mountain reed buck, couple of spring buck, some eland that came through now and then um, in, in the area. And they were eating the grass that was meant for his livestock. So he'd invite his friends over on weekends and they'd kill two, three hundred animals on a weekend. That's insane. Yeah, like once every couple of months and he'd give it away for free. It was just get these on the animals, house. Yeah, yeah, get these animals off my, my property uh, because I want more grass for my right. livestock. And then my dad... When he came to the property and started working for my grandfather, he said, listen, dad, can't we, turn, we can turn this into a business. And uh, in 1986, he started 
And that's when we got our first clients and it was South African corporate clients. So we got some business clients in, corporates that used to come and hunt. Mm-hmm. And those guys just hunted for meat. But then all of a sudden, I remember us growing up, we would, we would drive with the, with the rifle in the truck. Wherever we went, there was always a rifle in the truck. For meat. Just to, to kill whatever. <laughs> yeah. Whatever Save we the grass. see. Yeah. So we, um, I shot my first animal when I was five years old. And uh, whatever we saw, we would shoot. But once the animals started getting value, my dad was like, oh. <laughs> and uh, I remember at a very young age, he bought, he, he came to the US every year to do marketing. And he, when we were young, six, seven years old, he bought us bows. And he said, okay, you guys can go with the bows and you can shoot whatever you want because he knew it's going to be super, <laughs> super difficult. hard. Yeah. yeah, super difficult. But with the rifle, we were just killing too many animals because all of a sudden we got these clients that came in and paid for these animals and they were worth something so we couldn't just kill them. Um, and that's sort of where our business transitioned into a farming slash hunting business. So we run a hunting safari operation mm-hmm. and it's become bigger than the farming side of things. So we hunt for about six months of the year and we only do at this stage, we only do international clients. I would say 99.9% um, American clients. And uh, then for the other six months, we just do local livestock farming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my dad runs a pecanut orchard. Uh, my youngest brother runs an escargot farm. <laughs> so it's a snail farm. Very interesting. And then me and my other brother sort of run just uh, livestock uh, sheep, goats, and cattle farming. And I recently got a manager because I want to focus more on the hunting side of things, the marketing, and and take the hunting business to a next the next level. Um, so I've got a real good manager that looks after the animals on the property where I stay. And the abundance the abundance of game <clears throat> in your region is off the charts. I mean, the amount of wildlife there is insane. Yeah, it, so but it hasn't always been like that. It hasn't always been like that. Like I said, when my dad took over, um, there was about four or five different species in the area because all the other animals have been killed. My grandfather, you, if you come and visit us, you'll see in our, um, our outside fire pit barbecue area, there's big, uh, massive, what do you call them, traps mm-hmm. that they used to catch lion and leopard with. And obviously the lion and leopard killed their livestock, so they, they got rid of them. Yeah. There used to be buffalo, there used to be lion and leopard because my brother's farm is called Buffalo's Fontaine. And that means Buffalo's Fountain. So back in the day, there was definitely Buffalo in that valley, but they killed it off because they wanted that area and the, and the grass for their livestock. Yeah. And over the years, as our hunting business grew and we made money from the hunting side, my dad would every year take some of that money and repopulate the area with different species. So now at this stage, we offer our clients 30 different species, which is about 20 to 25 different species on our land. Um, which is, it's insane. Yeah. It's conservation at, in, in, you can't get better, better conservation than that. And it's only because the animals have value. If, if, if they stop hunting today and the animals don't have value, we'll kill all of it and go back to livestock farming. You got to protect the ranch. You got to make a living somehow. And, um, so the hunting side of things, uh, definitely adds value and when something has value people look after it. simple concept yeah and the hunting conservation dollars generating all the the resor- resources to make those wild populations exist it's like 
just a classic like proof story that the hunting is conservation. It's pretty amazing. Hunting is, is the best form of conservation. And because hunters come, the, the animals have value. Mm-hmm. So giving animals value is, is conservation. I'll tell you a quick story. In the 1970s, Kenya and South Africa, they estimated had about a million head of game, each country. And uh, they went the exact opposite routes. Kenya said, everything's owned by the state, the government. You can come to Kenya and you can do photography safaris, but the government owns everything. In South Africa, they said, everything's privately owned. If it's on my land, it's mine. And I can do with it whatever I want. So if a kudu bull jumps the fence and it's on my property, it's my kudu bull. I can kill it. I can capture it alive. I can sell it. I can do with it basically whatever I want. 50, what, 55 years later, Kenya's population of game sits at 200,000 head. The biggest problem in Africa is poverty. People need to eat. Mm-hmm. So if you go to Kenya, there's snares everywhere. People poach the animals. People kill the animals because people, they want to eat. They, they want need the food. Yeah. yeah. Nobody looks after the animals. Nobody takes ownership of the animals because they're not worth anything to them. The, the government doesn't do much. In South Africa, because they privately owned, people look after them because they've got value. Because you can live trade them, you can hunt them, you can do with them what you want. Mm-hmm. 50 years later, they estimate Kenya has about 200 head of game, 200,000 head of game. South Africa's got over 20 million head of game. That's wild. It's crazy. That is wild. Um, so if that doesn't tell you something, you're not looking at the right places. Yeah, preserving all the animals for future generations too. Yeah. And it was interesting how your dad got started in that as well because it it started originally as him coming to America to import goats. It, he wasn't coming here to to sell hunts originally, was he? So, it's a it's an interesting story. My my dad um is an interesting guy. <laughs> He's got many stories to tell. He can. I, he, he should actually write a book mm, for sure um, because he's had a lot of things happen over the years. And but how we got into the international market is we we um, in ninety one to ninety four South Africa was going through a bad patch. Uh, there was there was um, unrest. There was sanctions from the world on us. Um, and things weren't good. And we, on the property, we had a bad drought. So my dad went to the Lord and he said, Lord, if you want me to sell this property and do something else, please show me because I, I can't carry on like this. The, wh- what we're doing at the moment is not working. We won't survive like this. And um, it, he carried on for a couple of years. And in 1994, he got this random phone call from a guy called Jürgen Schultz. And uh, it's a Canadian, he's a Canadian guy, but he lives in Lampasas, Texas. And Jürgen said, are you part of the Jordan family that started breeding the boar goats? Um, so two generations before my dad, the Jordan started breeding boar goats. And um, he, my dad said, yes, I'm, I'm from the original family that started breeding the boar goats. And Jürgen said, do you have boar goats? I, and my dad said, yes, I've got a stud. I've got about 200. Hmm. And he said, well, I'm in South Africa. Can I come and see you? And my dad said, anytime. So Jürgen rocked up and... Um, my dad showed him the goats because he wanted, his plan was to export goats to the U.S., poor goats. Jürgen's dad 
was the guy that exported all the African wildlife into the zoos in the U.S. So they had an import-export business, and they brought African animals into the U.S., but he wanted to import these boer goats. So Which is like a really good meat goat, right? A meat goat, yeah. yeah. So my dad showed him our goats, and he was super impressed by the goats. And uh, at that stage, the goats were worth 500 rand a goat. In today's terms, 500 rand is like 25 bucks. Crazy. Yeah. And Jürgen told my dad, he'll take all of them and he'll pay him 2,000 rand a goat. Four times what Four they were worth. Four times what they were worth. Goat. Yeah. And, and my dad was in trouble. So he was <laughs> like, hallelujah, you take everything. You can, you can take everything. So the goats had to go through a testing procedure through quarantine. Um, and they had to test negative for 11 different tests before you could export them. So they tested our goats and our goats tested negative for everything except they tested positive for a tick. But at that time, we get a little tick with us, but it doesn't do any harm. Yeah. But they tested positive for a hot water tick. So hot water causes this water around the heart and they, they suffocate from it. Die. Yeah, they die from it. And we didn't have hot water in our area, but they tested positive for hot water. So my dad was down in the in the slums. Can't export. Yeah, can't export them. And uh, then Jürgen said, well, I tell you what, I'll employ you and Karen, my mom, for for the next year. And uh, you help me and we'll export these goats. You take me around to all the goat farmers in South Africa. We'll buy the best goats and um, we'll, we'll quarantine them on your property. And then we'll export them. So my dad said, good, we're in. And uh, they drove for two months all over the country, bought the best goats they could find, uh, brought them down to our property, tested them and then exported them to the U.S. And in the time that Jürgen was there, he saw all the wildlife and all the game, and my dad took him hunting, and he said, listen, so why, why don't you come and advertise your business in the U.S. to international clients? My dad said, I, I don't have money to get to the U.S. <laughs> I'm basically broke. I, yeah. I can't afford to go to the U.S. He had kind of just hit rock bottom yeah. at, on the farm. Yeah, and uh, Jürgen said, well, I'll, don't worry, I'll, I'll take care of you. So Jürgen bought them plane tickets, him and my mom, and uh, they flew to Dallas and he said, meet me at this hotel on the top floor. And uh, they went to the top floor, they waited there, and Jürgen came, landed with his big chopper back then. That's insane. Yeah, picked them up, <laughs> and they flew to all the big hunting ranches in Texas. Triple seven, I don't, I, I don't know all of them, but mm -hmm. like the big hunting ranches. Land like on the on the front lawn, <laughs> in a helicopter. In, yeah, in a helicopter, get introduced to like these high end lodge people, um, super wealthy guys, and uh, the next year in 1995, we got our first international clients coming from the U.S. Coming from the U.S. All because of Jurgen. That's a miracle. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. back then, like when you were there. Like those little lodges, they weren't there. There, there was basically nothing. <laughs> just they, one farmhouse. Yeah, probably just on. one farmhouse and this one little cabin thing that they had lunch and dinner and everything was done in there. Um, but that was in 1995. We got our first first international clients. and uh, All through that connection. All, all through Jürgen. And it, it, it was sent. It was a, it was a blessing from above and, and the Lord sent him. And, and then they exported the goats. Um, and my dad came over to the U.S. My dad was a, a goat judge back then. He still is. They came over to the U.S. and uh, my dad started 
teaching people about goats. So he'd come over for two or three months every year mm-hmm. and uh, teach the people in the U.S. about the goats and how they should look and how they should take care of them. Yeah. Do, has your dad always had a really strong faith in the Lord? Uh, yes. My my grandfather um, had an unbelievable faith through the Lord, and my dad always said that he tried to stay as close as possible to my grandfather because he was, my grandfather was super blessed. He was an unbelievably good fa- uh, farmer, mm-hmm. and he had massive property. And uh, my dad said he always tried to stay close to him because he felt like the Lord blessed my grandfather and the blessings ran through him. People around him. People around him got blessed. So my dad's faith's always been super strong. Yeah. And so after he was judging the goats in the U.S., he got an offer to stay here and live here, didn't he? Yeah. So my dad, he came over two, three times a year for a month, show people, uh, teach people about the goats. And then he became really good friends with a guy in Texas that loved the goats. And the guy's name was Don. We called him Uncle Don. Um, he had a massive property in Texas with gas. And I don't know if there was, yeah, with gas on the property that they mined and just a super wealthy guy. Um, and whenever my dad would come over, he'd stay with him. And uh, he brought us over once. We stayed with Don in Texas and uh, actually shot my first whitetail in Texas uh, from a from a deer stand. Like, a, a, like when you're 12? When I was 12, yeah. yeah. I wish I still had that head. <laughs> I, I don't know where that is. Um, but my dad and Don became really good friends. But Don had nobody. Don didn't have family. He didn't have a wife or kids. He, had, he literally had nobody. And whenever my dad would come over, he'd stay at Don's place. And most of the goats were in Texas then. So he would teach everybody about the goats and do shows and stuff. And um, I think it was in 1998, um, Don said to my dad, listen, because we came over and we spent time here and he loved our family. And he said to my dad, listen, why don't you bring Karen and the kids over? You come and stay in Texas with me. You take care of me because Don was an older guy. He was in his 70s by then. He said, you come over, you come and stay with me. You look after me. And once I pass away, I'll give you my whole estate. That's insane. It's insane because it's it was like, worth probably 50 million bucks. Huge Texas yeah. ranch. Yeah, huge Texas ranch with with uh, gas. And it was just endless opportunity. Yeah, it's like at the, in a lot of ways, it's like an American dream opportunity. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. And um, my dad went back to the Lord and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to go into the U.S. and um, and and take over Don's property? Or, or what do you want me to do? Please show me your way. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got a clear vision that the Lord doesn't need him in Texas or the U.S. The Lord needs him in Africa. So that is wild that he turned that offer down. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, he turned that offer down and, uh, we're still in Africa. (laughs) It's what 20, 25 years later, uh, or 20 years later. And we, and we're still in Africa and, uh, yeah, we've, we've gone through many trials and tribulations in, in those 20 years, but he's stuck with his faith and, and the Lord's been good. And he felt in his message from the Lord around staying, he felt that part of that message was around making a difference in his own backyard and changing lives in his in his own backyard. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. So the Lord showed him clearly, I, I don't need you in the U.S. I need you in Africa. I need you to make a difference in Africa right where you are. 
So our mission is to make a difference right where we are, is to change lives where we are. Trevor um, from Mountain Ops, he always says, uh, he's got a, a saying that says, um, lift where you stand. Lift where you it? stand. Yeah. yeah. It's, you, you don't have to cross the world to go and make a difference. There's people wherever you are <clears throat> that you can make a difference in their lives and that need help. So we stayed in Africa and our goal is my dad is making a difference in, in our community mm-hmm. and, and where we are. And our goal is to just grow that and keep changing lives and impacting people and sharing the word. That's amazing. And so he ended up guiding for around 30 years, a lot of international clients coming over. And then as you and your brothers got older, he transitioned out of guiding and is doing a lot more farming. And so now the hunting operation is, is ran by you, your two other brothers, but it's a, it's a big family business. Everyone's involved. Yeah, so my dad, my dad, um, he guided for a couple of years, and then he tried to grow the business uh, in other ways. And he started. He always got uh, local guides in, so free. We call them freelancing guides. Mm-hmm. They'd guide for this outfitter, and they'd go and guide for that outfitter, and they guide wherever. And he, he used to use um, a lot of freelancing guides over the years. And then Peter, my brother, he's been guiding for probably about seven or eight years now and then I joined about three four years ago and Villa my youngest brother just joined the business this year so we we sort of phased out the the freelancing guides and we do all the guiding ourselves so it's me and then my two younger brothers and then we've got a cousin whose name's also Paul because mm-hmm. in our family you you get named after your grandfather the oldest boy gets named after his grandfather. So there's a, there's a lot of Pauls. <laughs> there's a lot of Pauls. <laughs> so he's my dad's brother's boy, but he basically grew up in the house with us. So he's like a brother to us. So the four of us, he's been guiding for my dad for about 15 years. And uh, the four of us are doing all the guiding at the moment. And uh, it's been really good for the business because we all have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. And when you have skin in the game, you just go the extra mile. It's um, amazing, yeah. It's an amazing <laughs> operation just with the families there, especially for me bringing my whole family and bringing my daughters and my wife. Just that family dynamic and experience makes it pretty special and unlike many other opportunities out there for Hunter. But just like my kids playing with your kids when they're not hunting and then that that kind of like magical experience is, is pretty rare. There's not many hunts like that a hunter can go after. It's it's a difficult thing to explain to people, the feeling you get once you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, we Our operation is definitely different because we're a big family uh, and we do the guiding and our wives do the cooking and they look after the clients at the lodge and they make sure everything runs smoothly there. Um it's, it's definitely diff- different to most operations. So most operations you go to would encourage you to come and leave your family back home because they want you to focus on the hunt. Yeah. With us, we encourage our clients to bring their families with because we're a big family business. Our families are there, our wives are there, our kids are running around on the grass. Um, you get sort of that family, homey feel when, you, when you're with us. And it's, it's a difficult thing to explain to clients. But once they're there, they, they just love it. Yeah, it's amazing because my youngest daughter, Addie, who's eight, she is not passionate about 
hunting. It's not her thing. She's kind of like still intimidated by rifles and shooting. And she's, she's petite and small and maybe hunting just won't be her thing, or maybe it's still a little bit too early for her. And so my older daughter, Ava is very passionate about hunting and is super into it. And so even before going to see you with my wife, we had a lot of conversations around like, well, we're all going on this hunting trip in Africa. Hopefully Addie's not just having a miserable time because we're on this hunt and she doesn't like hunting yet. But Addie had like the time of her life because because of that family experience, like it didn't matter that she wasn't actually hunting herself, but she's running around playing with kids, playing with other clients' kids, playing with your family's kids. It was like 20, 20 hours a day of adventure with other kids, like in no electronics, you're unplugged from everything in the middle of nowhere. Like she, even though she's not ready or excited to hunt right now on this hunt, it's going to be like a memory that that lasts the rest of her life. So that, that made it pretty powerful. And I think a lot of that is due to, because it's a family operation. Yeah. So with us, we're not trying to sell the kill. The kill is a small part of the experience with us. We Mm. try and sell an, an experience. And when you go hunting, Yes, it's fun to kill an animal when you're out there by yourself, but it's way better killing it when you've got people around you that you can share the experience with. And like I said, it's not about the kill. The kill is a super small part of everything that we try and offer the clients. So we, like I said, we encourage guys to bring their families. And even if the wives and the kids don't want to hunt, some days they go with and some days they want to see what's going on and sometimes they hunt. But we we, we offer a lot of day trips where they mm-hmm. can go on. Like the ladies... One of our wives takes them, one that's not cooking or not working in the lodge, takes them on different day trips or different activities. And there's so many activities um, that you can do once you're there. You can go shopping, you can go sightseeing, you can do a spa day, um, you can do a wine and cheese tasting. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different activities. You can spend time at, uh, at the orphanage or at the school. A lot of the wives come and they actually teach a class at the school. So we've got a little school running. And they teach a class at the school and uh, it's life-changing for those kids. So they come, they have an unbelievable time, they change lives. And in the process, they, they get like, their life gets changed because they meet all these little incredible kids that have got nothing. Serving and, and yes, giving back. Just serving and giving, yeah. Yeah, the school <laughs> was an amazing part of our experience as well. Let's talk about the, the school for a, a minute here because how the school... <laughs> got started is a pretty crazy story because the, the, the roots and the foundation of that school getting started are connected to your dad's life threatening attack by a Cape Buffalo. Like, is that how it kind of started originally? Yeah. So it, it originally started, my dad was in Europe somewhere on a train and he got a vision that he needs to start a school and that the school should be uh, Christian based and, uh, that they should teach the kids. The biggest problem in South Africa is kids grow up without a father. Like it, the, the, the statistics are scary. The amount of colored black kids that grow up without a father figure. And that plays a massive role because they don't have an example to look up to. So you got this vision that you should start a school and that they should change lives 
and teach these kids in the school values, um, discipline, everything that we know that they don't know. Foundational just, stuff. Just foundational stuff. Um, and that they can hopefully take that and go into the community and teach that in the community and make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the vision he got. And he, he wanted to do that for many years, but it just didn't, it just didn't happen. Didn't find the right guy, right people. Um, the Buffalo attack was somewhere in there as well. <laughs> um, it's an interesting story. Yeah. That um, one is wild. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to that one. Um, and then we, he got a phone call the one day from a from a guy and his wife. The guy is a is a teacher and his wife's a pastor, and they were on their way to Tanzania or somewhere, and they just got this vision that said they need to contact one of my dad's friends and referred them to my dad, and they came and they see us. And in 2019, we started the small school where we take in about 10 to 15 kids a year. They send in their applications, and we. We take in 10 to 15 kids and, and the whole goal is is to change their life, um, to change their life for the better. And it's an incredible program because the kids that go through that program are changed. By the end of the year, you can't compare the kids that come in to the kids that leave. Different people. Different people. Um, and then the goal with that is that they will go back into their communities and make a difference. It's super hard because... They just have a different mentality. The community feels like, oh, you you changing, you think you're better than us, and they just try and drag them down. They, they never try and uplift. Mm-hmm. In, their, in their culture, they don't uplift each other. They try and drag each other down all the time. So it's hard on the kids. Like They struggle to go home on holidays because they just get attacked like get crazy. Picked on and- but if they can be strong and finish the year, we, we try and take them the next step. So whatever they want to do, uh, if they want to go study something in that year, we teach them everything. We teach them leadership skills. We teach them foundational skills. We teach them discipline. We teach them agriculture. They go through so many different courses to find out where they actually want to go in life as well. Um, and then they pick a direction that they want to go and we send them to university or we try and find them a job and we try and help them with the next steps as well. Um, and it's been super impactful. And you're, that school in particular, you're, you're targeting kids at a very pivotal, pivotal age because it's getting youth that is just finishing high school, getting ready to kind of decide what their next life step will be. And it, it seemed like from when I was there, what they talked about a lot is the most common life step in that community after finishing high school is to kind of just stay in town and do nothing, which leads to a lot of alcohol abuse and other problems. And so that, that pivotal, pivotal stage at life where you guys are setting this good foundation of character and integrity is, is pretty awesome because it's, it's, that's going to transform the next 20 years of their life. If you can help them down that path of making a better decision, that's awesome. Yeah, no. Um, like I said, it started in 2019, and uh, it's only been a couple of years, but it's it's been amazing. The kids have, that have finished the year, some of them drop out throughout the year because the pressure is just too much back home. And um, but the kids that finish the year, their lives are changed. Um, they they different people, and mm-hmm. and they definitely making a difference wherever they are. 
And a lot of the meat from some of the hunts is going to those kids as well. Yeah, so a lot of meat from the hunts that are harvested goes to the to the school. And then we've got a little orphanage in, in town that we support as well. So some of the meat goes to the orphanage. That's pretty awesome how hunters are able to give back in that way. Yeah. So how was the buffalo attack related to that school getting started? Um, so the buffalo <laughs> attack is a, is a different one. And uh, it comes back to the message my dad got um, when the Lord showed him that we shouldn't come to the U.S. is that you've got to make a difference. You've got to lift where you are and, and make a difference right where you are. And um, it was in 2014. Yes, I. it was in 2014. I broke my, or I, ju I just had 2013. I had knee surgery. I had ACL reconstruction three days before the buffalo attacked my dad. And uh, that's why I was at home because I used to be at the at the rugby club. Playing rugby, yeah. Yeah, all the time. And we got this call that said there's a big buffalo bull in the main road uh, chasing vehicles. <laughs> so we drove down. It's it's at my brother's profit property. We drove down there and we found this big bull in the road. So we chased him with the truck. <laughs> we chased him into into back into the fenced area. And what happened is it was an older bull that got attacked by younger bulls and they pushed him out of the out of the the big herd and they just yeah big fights and then he broke the fence and came into the main road the main dirt road so he didn't want to go back into the side he was so we put him into the other side and then he went into an alfalfa field and normally cattle blow up they get if they eat too much alfalfa they they blow up and they get gas and they die they, die, they suffocate yeah. Um, so we were like, okay, we can't leave him. Yeah. So we pushed him with the truck, with the truck through this alfalfa field. And, uh, we had a, a big boma and my dad said, let's, let's try and get him in the boma because I'm scared he's going to break the fence again and just cause more trouble. Is a boma like a corral? Like a corral. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like a corral. And, um, so we pushed him with the truck. Um, and then he went through this little creek bed and the we couldn't drive further with the truck so we, we got out and my dad and one of our managers sort of the bull just went by himself and uh, we j they just shouted at him and I came along with the crutches hopping behind and for some reason this bull made his way straight to the boma and went into the boma <laughs> like so my dad and the manager run up to the boma's gate and they try and close the gate but it was a it was a swing gate, a little swing gate, and obviously when they tried to close the gate, the buffalo saw what was happening. So he came, he turned around and he came back and he hit the gate, and as soon as he hit the gate, the manager went flying, and my dad was right next to him. Those so, things are so powerful. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Um, so he was right right next to my dad, and my dad started running like along the side of the boma and he came they they're super dangerous they kill people um there was a guy killed in september last year there was a hunter killed and and the the guide was in hospital for two or three weeks um, very aggressive very aggressive yeah anyway cape buffalo not not water buffalo yeah um, so he ran behind my dad and my dad jumped and tried to pull himself up because it's a high high corral and as he pulled himself up, it hit him sort of on his on his legs, on his back, and he let go. And he basically sat on the bull's horns. 
And I was still like 100 yards behind them. And you're on crutches? And I was on crutches. I had knee surgery three days ago. Oh, man. My knee's still swollen and I'm still in pain. And uh, so the bull throws him back over his, over his body and he lands in the corner of this Boma Corral thing. And um, I, I just remember as he sort of, as he got up onto his knees, the bull hit him straight on his chest and he flew on the back and the bull was on top of him. And like nobody survives that. No. No, and people don't survive that. Like, yeah, like you, if, if a buffalo gets hold of you, you, you're basically dead. Um, the chances of surviving is super slim. Yeah. So anyway, this bull was on top of my dad, um, basically crushing him into the ground. Were you trying to hobble over there? I was hobbling over there. And it was, I didn't have a gun or I didn't have anything with me. I had my bloody crutches with me. So I <laughs> tried to throw him with the crutch and I got on top of the corral. Um, and there was, there was nothing I could do. So my dad... He was, he, he, was, he was killing my dad and my dad, he's, he said he was basically done and he, he tried to hold on to the horns of this bull and uh, he said, he, he shouted out, he said, Lord, if you want to save me, you got to save me now or you got to take me. Or he's gone. Yeah. yeah. And the bull stopped, left him and walked into the corral, like calmly made his way into the corral and my dad was lying there. Right after that prayer. Yeah, he, he shouted, you got to save me or you got to take me. Crazy. And um, the bull left him, walked into the corral, and he was lying there. So I jumped off, hobbled on one leg, put him sort of over my shoulder, threw him over the fence, and um, ran to the truck. And as I ran to the truck, I called my mom and I said, listen, dad's in big trouble. You need to call the hospital and tell them I'm on my way and um, he's not good. Yeah. So I put him in the truck and uh, he said he could, he could feel, he told me he could feel internal bleeding. Blood. Yeah, blood just everywhere. Blood was everywhere. He had a hole in his hamstring. Face. Was ripped up. He's had a hole in his chest. His face was crushed completely. Um, so we, we rushed him to the hospital. And then they, they put him in an ambulance and, and rushed him to Port Elizabeth to, the, to a big hospital there. And he was in ICU for about 12 days, I think. Um, and he recovered. This is 100%. He recovered. And uh, ever since then, he, he just feels that we aren't doing enough. We need to do more. For the so, community. For the community. So that's how the that's you got the vision after that of the school um so it's kind of like god saved him so that he could do more work so before he his could, time's he up could do more he's a he's a cat with nine lives <laughs> he's gone through a couple of couple of serious things that's wild yeah. he's he should have been de dead a couple of times he's and been he, he's been bit by a lion on his hand he's been stabbed by a fellow deer and literally missed his his main artery with like Two millimeters. Um, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. If you meet him now, you would never even know too that like about the buffalo attack. He looks completely normal, healthy, moving yeah. around, yeah, making it to the gym. He's good. He trains with us when he's there. He's fit. He's healthy. He um, they they had he had surgery on everything. Um, shoulder surgery. He tore muscles off his spine. Um, his lung collapsed. 
It was bad. That is wildly recovered from that. His face was completely crushed. They had to go in and reconstruct it and do plastic surgery. And he's 100%. He's healed up completely fine. He's a... That's a miracle. Yeah, to be even hit by a Cape Buffalo one time, mm. most people aren't going to survive. And that thing hit him several times. Yeah. That's insane. No, it's a, it's, he's, a, he's an absolute walking miracle. <laughs> yeah. So what a, what's kind of on your radar and your vision for kind of continuing that legacy, running your family operation? What is... What's your big plans or ideas on how to continue to grow and give back to the community in Africa now? Yeah, so my my dream is to is to is to take the business to the next level. I wanna I want our business to be recognized as one of the top safaris in South Africa because in South Africa there's hundreds you can go to, mm-hmm. and they're all different. They all offer something different. But I want I want us to be recognized like as if somebody says you want to go in South you want to go hunt in South Africa, these guys are you need to look at them, um, and I I've got so many different plans, um, but I, I've met so many different people and what I've realized is it's not it's not in my control it's out of my control I can have these dreams and visions. But it's it's in the hands of the Lord. Um, if He wants us to grow the business, it'll grow, mm. and He'll He'll put us in the right places to make it grow. If He doesn't want to, it won't. But but the dream is to is to grow the business so that it gets to a point where it's super successful because it's all of our families are involved. Uh, our business fed one family; it needs to feed four families now. Yeah. So I want to grow it to a, to a place where it's super successful. But in the process of doing that, you need to give back. Um, the more you get, the more you give, and uh, the more I come and meet people like you and Trevor and a lot of friends in the U.S. I I see it over and over again. The more you give, the more you get, mm-hmm. and the more you get to give again. So, in the process of growing the business, I want to give back and change the community. Yeah, and just become a blessing any way you can. Yeah, yeah. I had a word given to me um, October last year. There was a random guy that we we had a a men's camp. This random guy, he was a professional golf player, went to a a talk in in Pretoria and uh, it was an American lady and she called him up randomly up to stage and she said to him, listen, What's your name? He said, my name's Ernie, Ernie Amos. And uh, she said, what do you do? He says, I, I play professional golf. I'm living the life. And she said, well, the Lord says you're going you're gonna to start singing and you're going <laughs> to be a leader for men and, and you're going to change lives. And he she looked just at told him that. <laughs> and he looked at her and he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm living my best life. I'm a professional golfer. Traveling I, the world. Traveling the world. I wouldn't do anything else right now. And a year later... Stopped playing golf, picked up a guitar, sings, goes all over the country and uh, changes lives. Has these conferences with men. And uh, we had a get-together with him in Somerset East, our small little town. And he, he called me and he said, listen, called me out of the crowd and said, listen, the Lord says you're going to make a big difference in the community. That so, is crazy. And yeah. he didn't even know who you were. He didn't know who I was, no. Yeah. So... Um, so I've I've got that word and that's what we're going to try and do. 
Yeah, I think, didn't he even say you're going to travel internationally and meet people to like help you along your path? That's exactly what he said. He said, um, he sees that me and my wife are going to travel the world, change lives and and bring that back to South Africa. Wild. Yeah. And your wife just came to America with you. <laughs> my wife spent three weeks <laughs> in the US later. with me for for the first time that she's traveled to the, to the States. And uh, yeah, it was an incredible time. The Lord's mm. the Lord's path is pretty wild, and when people can like see those visions, it's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It is. So we the the Lord works in mysterious ways, and uh, I we've been so blessed this year. We've met unbelievable people just through through the hunting business, and um, we I've got like unbelievable friends in the U.S. and people that do a lot for charity and. We, I, I believe the energy you put out into the world, you get back. And it's the same with our hunting business. We, we attract people that are just like us. Mm-hmm. All our clients are like the nicest people you could ever meet. Um, so we've met unbelievable people over the last two, three years, and we're busy planning uh, a massive sort of marketing collaboration, collaboration campaign for next year, uh, and, and a massive, massive campaign, uh, um, campaign just to change lives mm-hmm. um, and give back. And like the Lord, like he said, you're going to change lives in the community. And it, without me doing anything, me being good, the Lord have sent people over our paths that if we can pull off this collaboration charity event, it's going to be massive. Yeah. It's going to change so many lives. Um so the goal is to get a bunch of big brands, so 10 different brands in the outdoor space. Um, it's being put together by Mountain Ops and Baku, um, yeah. very good friends with those guys. And, and our goal is to, to get 10 big companies involved, um, bring a representative of each company over to South Africa. Um, we'll sponsor everything. We're going to sponsor everything on our side. Um, it's going to be a fun event. We're going to have teams and each team will have a guide and a camera guy and, uh, a couple of hunters, three hunters in a team. And, um, we'll have like fun little competitions, like a fitness competition and a long range shoot competition. And, and then we're going to hunt each team. will get a couple of animals to hunt, but in the process of hunting, a lot of the meat that we hunt will give, um, to the community and to the school and the orphanage. And then we, we want to try and raise money um, to give back. The The school needs uh, like a minivan mm-hmm. and uh, they need cupboards in the rooms um, because we just set up a new premises for them on, on my dad's property. Uh, they've moved a couple of times, but they've settled now and they've now got they're a, on site. Yeah, now they're on site. They've got a place. Um, and and we, we're busy building up this place for them to make it really nice and comfortable. And uh, so there's a couple of small projects that we're going to try and do there um, and and just show how passionate hunters are to give back and yeah. change. Uh, we'll do a small little conquer hunger event where we'll pack food parcels and go and hand it out to the community. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be like an amazing event. A conquer hunger in Somerset East where you're at would be mind blowing to me just because we were able to do one here at Tough Fest this year in Bozeman at the lab. And so that was our first time 
working with mountain ops to bring them to Montana and do a conquer hunger in Bozeman. And it was, it was pretty insane to, to pack. We packed 42,000 meals and they were able to go to the Montana food bank and our local food bank all for, for us, it was all for kids that don't have food to eat in the summer because they're not at school. So these meals went into the kids' backpacks. So they had five meals for the week at least. And that's just one meal a day that they're able to get through the Conquer Hunger program. But Bozeman's a, a pretty affluent town. And, and there is poverty in every affluent town that you can't see. Oftentimes we miss it, even though it's right in our backyard. But but poverty in your town is out in the open. I mean, it's, it's a lot different than Bozeman. And, and I think like the ability to run an event like that there, it would be, it would be spectacular. I mean, it would be a big miracle to see. And it would be awesome for Trevor and for mountain ops. It would be really special to see that program go international too. Cause I know they hit their five millionth meal this year, but but to see them go run one in Africa would be out of this world. Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a crazy program. It just shows you Trevor's story. If you the more you give, the more you get, mm-hmm. and the more you get, the more you can give. Um, and uh, the goal is to do a little one, but to get the community involved, get the school involved, get the orphanage involved, teach those kids that y- you can give as well. Like Trevor had nothing and he still gave Yeah, in his story. Um, so we want to try and teach those kids, especially kids in the school, like you can change somebody's life. You can do something good. So we'll have them help us pack the meals. We'll get the community involved. And I think it's going to be a massive event. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, you guys have a, a special operation. It's definitely, it's nothing like I've ever seen or been to it. I think the the location is amazing. The family is amazing. Having having the gym on site at uh, at a hunting camp is rare, and your gym is nicer than than a lot of hotel gyms. So being able to train hard every day before you hunt was was really magical as well. It's it's a it's a really cool thing that you guys have, and to to be able to raise your family out there and like out in the wild with all their nieces and nephews. It's, it's, it's a magical place. Yeah. It's, it's special. Like I said, it's been in the family for what, 150 years since 1871. They, the first Jordan settled it. And, um, especially in the day and age we live today, uh, the world is upside down. That's what I believe. I believe the world's upside down and what used to be right is wrong and everything's gray. There's no black and white, so to be out in the country and away from everything that's happening in the world right now is a massive blessing, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, the gym is is a special place. It's where we connect every morning. So we work out at 4 a.m. every morning, me and then... The guides. Yeah, me and my brothers. And, yeah. and then I've got some friends that come in three times a week. They literally get up at 3.30 
a drive out on a dirt road, 30 <laughs> kilometers, because it's the best gym in like a 200 kilometer radius. That's crazy. The other other gyms are in Port Elizabeth and it's it's a two hour drive. Mm-hmm. So they drive out and, and we gym at four in the morning because when we go hunting, some days we leave at five, some days we go five thirty, six o'clock. So it's it's an unbelievable place. When I when I retired from rugby, I had a quite a lot of injuries and I knew that I had to stay healthy and I need to train to sort of keep everything active. Otherwise I would just blow up. Um, so I put up a really nice gym. I spent a bit of money and my dad said, you're crazy. You can't spend that much money on, on, <laughs> on a, a gym. gym. And I said, listen, I'm not spending that money on a gym. I'm spending that money on myself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's for me to keep going and to, to be healthy and to have a good mindset because the gym is so much more than just lifting weights. Like when we get in there at four, my brain is so bright. Like that's where all the plans come. We, the chats that happen in the gym. It's amazing. It's, it's almost like a spiritual place. It's almost a place like where the Lord says, okay, here's an idea. Here's an idea. And then I chat to my brothers and I'm like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? So it's a, it's a special place. Yeah. It's pretty magical. Yeah. The brotherhood that can happen through like training with a small group every day is, is there's nothing like it. And like the, just the accountability and pushing each other. And you are right. It's like, it, it's much more than physical, the mental training you get out of just doing something hard every day. Like you're, you're sharper, your thoughts are clearer, you're way less grouchy. And it, it's a really special setup. Yeah. There's a, a study that, um, I actually want to play it to you. Throw my phone there. I'll play it quickly. Yeah. That'd be awesome. There's a study that showed, um, I'll play it for you, I saved it. When I see something cool on Instagram, I, I try and save it. Oh, yeah. Um, but this is just an audio. I'll try and find it quickly. Um, is it on the mental, physical connection? No. All psychology, all neuroscience, and this is, I think, the most interesting finding of the last decade in all of science. And this is the insight that your muscles are basically an endocrine organ that secrete hormones into your bloodstream that affect every system of your body. Your muscles, they secrete chemicals and proteins when you exercise that are also really good for your brain health. And one of the first papers almost 10 years ago that was published explaining that when you contract your muscles, they literally secrete these proteins into your bloodstream. Yeah, so training is is so much more than yeah. than just lifting weights. It's good for your mental state. It's good for your physical state. It's it's uh, yeah. I I'm a little addicted to it. <laughs> <laughs> just a little. Just it's a, a little. good addiction. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, all the literature and all the research now is almost describing it as like 10 years ago, it was all talked about like the mind and body and the mind and body connection in the, the, all the latest literature, just like she just said on that study is they're all one thing. So it's not the mind and the body. It's all one system and they're all working together. It's not, we're not training two different systems. It's, it's all one and you have to be, you have to be physically healthy to be mentally healthy. It's 
It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, we work out at four every morning because I believe if you get up and you do something hard in the morning or you do something hard, the rest of your day is easy. When something hard comes across your path, I believe when you can make difficult things easy, you're in a good place Mm -hmm. because difficult things are going to come your way all the time. But if a difficult thing comes and you're like, ah, that's not that bad. I, I, I do way more hectic stuff than this. Then your life becomes easy. Just a simple example is when I, a couple of years ago, I didn't like to hike the mountains because it just, it wasn't that fun for me. Yeah. Now I'm at a point where if I see a big kudu bull on the mountain, I'm hiking that mountain. You're because, going. Because I love it. Yeah. And it's just a different mentality in a different state of mind, um, but it, it changes everything. So we, I believe you got to do something hard every day. So we wake up at, at four o'clock or quarter to four. We train at four. Um, after training, we take a cold shower every day. It was, so our seasons are the opposite of yours. It was, it's winter with us. It just went into spring. Yep. So it, it's been winter, it gets cold. So we've been taking cold showers every morning. It's icy. <laughs> For six like months. It's, yeah, it's an icy shower, <laughs> but, but we do it because once you get out of there, you feel like a change. You feel like a, a new person, like cold exposure. There's studies on cold exposure that, that gives you a massive dopamine hit of like two and a half X of, of normal things and then it stays there for the whole day yeah so it's long it's, lasting it's, it's crazy so we we train and and our, i work out our programs we do a little high intensity session every morning but we use that as our warm-up mm-hmm. because we don't have that much time we can't stretch too much so we go into a <clears throat> into a high high intensity session for like 15 to 20 minutes and then i feel like okay the body is good it, i can lift now so we do that for 20 minutes and then we lift for about 40 minutes um, and after that, the day is easy. Yeah. You can handle anything. Yeah. Starting, starting the day with something hard and doing something hard every day is so good for mental toughness. That's my favorite part of like the cold plunging is I, I I'm not super into all the scientific muscle recovery benefits of cold plunging. I think they're out there and I think they're great. But the reason I got hooked on it is it's the same mental toughness it takes to like make a hard decision or have a a hard conversation or do something courageous. So like some people say courage only takes 20 seconds. So like if you're going to skydive, it's really scary jumping out of the plane. But once you're out, it's really fun. So it's like you just have to have enough mental toughness to take that step and then everything is okay generally after that. And it's similar to like having a difficult conversation in life. They're really scary until that conversation starts and then it's fine. And cold plunging to me is the exact same thing because you really, like when that tub is sitting out there completely full of ice, especially in our winter, when you have to like chisel the ice off, you really don't want to get in that tank at all. But it, it only hurts for about five seconds and then it's awesome. Like the, you jump in, it's terrible. It takes your breath away and then you calm down and then it's really not that bad at all, but it gives, it's like, it's kind of like you're working out, you're working out your mind to be able to do that later on in the day. Cause you took that step, you got in the tank, 
you kind of built that mental muscle. And then later in the day, nothing's quite as hard because you already did that. And it's pretty insanely how, how powerful that stuff is. Yeah, like I, I told my brothers and, and the guys that train with us, I don't know what, I know the benefits. I've, I've read some studies and I know some of the benefits, but it, there's, there's something to it. Because once you get out of there, you, like I said, you feel like a new person. And I, I believe my dad raised us like everything you do in life, your whole life is controlled by your mind because your mind is super strong. If you, can, if you can believe something, truly believe it and speak it, you can achieve it. Mm-hmm. Your mind is, is that powerful. So I think mental toughness is a, is, is a massive thing. And um, you can become mentally strong just by having these small little achievements every day. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when we were over there (laughs) and there's the African tradition of after you harvest your first African animal, you get blood on your face and you have to eat part of the liver. And you had my daughter do it and Chris's son, Max, and they were pretty intimidated and pretty freaked out about taking that big bite of raw liver but you worked with them really well on their mind. Like there was only their mind telling them that that liver was potentially going to taste bad, which they don't know that. And it could be a completely false thought because they've never had a big bite of raw liver before. So like working with them on their mind that maybe it actually tastes good and maybe you can convince yourself that it tastes good, gave them the courage to like, just go ahead and do it. And it, it was like a real obvious black and white example of how powerful the mind is because they were scared. And as soon as you kind of told them to, well, just imagine that it tastes good and just get it over with, they both just went for it and were completely fine. But before that, their mind had convinced them it's going to be so awful that even if it was good, they would have spit it out. So it was like the mind can do crazy things. No, the mind is the mind is crazy. I I went to a show once, a hypnotizing show, and that's where I saw how ridiculously strong your your mind is, because people got hypnotized, and some of my friends went up on stage and got hypnotized, and they did stuff that they like weird stuff, but crazy. It's, be, it's because they were hypnotized, and this guy let them do like the guy would say, okay, you you like a world famous drummer, so you're gonna drum. And then they would just start drumming <laughs> because then he told, he got their mind to a state where the mind listened to what he said. And they fully believed that they were a world famous drummer and they were drumming away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and difficult, he said to them, okay, we're going to have a little break. And uh, after the break, when the music starts playing, you're going to come back up to the stage and start dancing. And my friends came down and they had a drink. Um, during the break and I said you know when the music starts you're going back on stage they're like we're never going back on stage and when the music starts they're going back on stage and it's it's just the mind the mind is 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 incredible incredible yeah uh, so I believe like if you it's, it's just if you can change your thought process if you can change your mind like when I played rugby I used to hate ice baths mm-hmm. we used to ice bath after a game I hated it. It was like the worst thing for me because an ice bath is not fun. It's painful when you get in and it, it's not the most fun thing. Now, when 
just the fact that I've changed my mindset and I choose to ice bath, I love it. Yeah, just by flipping that switch. Just by flipping that switch, just by having a different perspective. So we can talk all day about the mind. <laughs> um, yeah, the mind is, is crazy. And when I d fear something and I don't want to do something, I always ask myself the question, why? Why don't you want to do it? What are you scared of? What's the worst that can happen? Mm -hmm. Are you going to die? Are you, you might get hurt. What's the worst that can happen? And once you find the answer to why you're scared or why you don't want to do that, oh, I might fall off this bike and I might break my arm, but I'll recover. I'll be okay. Then it's easy to do it. A lot of false fears. Yeah. So if you can play with your mind and do these little hard things every day, that just makes you more mentally tough all the time. Life, life is, becomes different. Life becomes almost easy when difficult things come your, come your way. Yeah, I think it's one of the most empowering things in life to get to a realization that you are in control of your mindset and your mindset controls your entire attitude and you can't be passive about it and that took me a lot of like life experience to figure out. But like, like if you're, if you're going through a hard time today and you're grouchy today, it's probably because of your mindset and you are in control of that and can flip that around anytime you want. And that'll flip your attitude around. And it's a constant process. It's something you have to work on every day, but just being aware that, that you are in control and, it changes the entire game. Yeah, I think awareness plays a big part. Mm -hmm. Once you become aware that you can actually, you are in control of your emotions, you're in control of your thoughts, you're in control of your actions. Once you become aware of that, then y y your life changes mm -hmm. because you get to, to decide how you're going to react in certain certain situations instead of your emotions making you react in a certain way. You've got the decision to react or you've got the decision to take the time and then respond. So men mental <laughs> stuff is, yeah, the mind is crazy, but we, we were very blessed that my, my dad is the most mentally tough guy that I know on this planet. Like nothing gets him down. Mm -hmm. my, my dad's mentally so tough that he went, in South Africa we went through a massive drought, like a really bad six-year drought we um, we had COVID. We didn't have clients. Our business financially was in big trouble. If it wasn't for the Lord, our business should have been gone by now. Yeah, COVID, but, no clients Yeah, for but two we years. always get thrown another opportunity, another line that we can grab onto. <clears throat> but my dad mentally is so tough that he he's had so much stress over the last couple of years that he went, he still gets it now and then, but not as often. But he gets to a point where he passes out. Just from stress? From stress. His, his ear would go blocked, boop, then it runs through his head, then this ear goes blocked, and then he, he passes out, like <laughs> literally passes out. And he went to the doctors, he went to the ENT, he went for a couple of scans, there's nothing wrong with him. They say it's stress. That's the only thing. So you must know if you're mentally in a spot where you get to the point where you pass out from stress, from stress like my dad, nothing gets him down. Something would happen to me and I'd be like, oh, this and that. And, it's terrible. And he'd be like, no, it's not that bad. You're fine. 
you, that's not going to get you down. That's amazing. He's mentally the strongest guy and he's always positive. Like you wouldn't hear him say anything negative. Ever. Like the worst thing would happen to him and he'll find a way to find something positive in the bad thing that happened. So we've been very blessed with a really good example. That is amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. Well, I'm I'm really glad that the Lord connected us last fab February and it's been really cool to see. I, I love when like you meet new people, you never know where that's gonna lead in life, but getting to meet you at Western Hunt and then getting to go see you in Africa with my family and then now you're here in Bozeman all in a pretty short amount of time is amazing. And I'm excited to see where the future takes it from here and really glad you came to the lab and trained with us today. It's been awesome. Yeah, no, it's, it's been a privilege to come and see you guys and see your spot. Um, you've got a really good thing going and I, I love what you guys do because you, you changing lives through fitness and mental health health and, um, yeah, we, we're very blessed to have met you guys and I'm sure we're going to have an incredible future that lies ahead. Yeah. Um, I'm excited. Yeah. Something's brewing for sure. Something big is brewing. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks Paul. Appreciate you. Thanks my friend. Appreciate uh, you guys letting me on the podcast. You bet. <laughs>